Hello and welcome back to the Old Sport Podcast. Boy oh boy, do we have a show for you today. The men's ashes are done and I'm pretty sure three more white guys need to have their say. It's been a pretty big week in the soccer world and from what I gather, a little bit's been happening in the world of tennis as well. All that for you and much, much more. I'm Hamish Stewart and much like Virat Kohli, I'm yelling down at the microphone at my co-conspirators, Ben Rosen and Hugo Carson. Hugo, you're currently locked up. How are you passing the time? Uh, yeah, g'day Hamish. Um passing the time watching sport as you can imagine uh lucky enough to be locked down locked up while the uh the cricket's on and then um the nfl playoffs as well so got got plenty to to catch my eye that was the, that was a test so you passed uh well done <laughs> ben how you doing yeah not too bad mate not too bad yourself yeah very well um do you want to crack right into it yeah, for sure. We'll start with the cricket results. Another big week in cricket. And we'll start with the fifth and final Ashes test in Hobart, the day-nighter. And it was a bizarre and remarkable end to what has been a really dominant Ashes series. The Aussies put the icing on the cake with a 146-run victory over a heavily depleted English outfit. The victory was enough to secure a 4-0 series scoreline to the good of the Australians, the second such consecutive Ashes scoreline on Australian shores. It was a series that put to bed a plethora of questions hanging over the Australian side's head, but at the same time laid bare just as many flaws for the English. So they'll have a lot to address as they lick their wounds and return home. And all these talking points and, and many more will be stewed over in great detail in just a minute, so I don't want to give too much away. So we'll get to another enthralling test series, and that was India versus South Africa over in South Africa. The third and final test and series decider was played in Cape Town over the week just gone by, and fans were treated to a third consecutive Titanic struggles, but Titanic struggles, sorry, between these two teams. In the end, it was South Africa who won the test by seven wickets and with it the series. The Proteas were set 212 for victory by the tourists, but made light work of the run chase thanks to a brilliant 82 uh, run innings by man of the match, Keegan Peterson. The final test threw up a whole host of talking points. Not least of all was Virat Kohli's DRS tantrum and subsequent stepping down from the test captaincy. I have a funny feeling that you boys won't let this episode draw to a close without taking a deep dive into both of those issues. So I'll keep rolling for the time being. And I'll roll all the way into the big bash standings where the Perth Scorchers sit atop the ladder on 38 points. They're followed by the two Sydney teams on 31 points with the Adelaide Strikers rounding out the top four on 28 points. It's worth noting, though, that the Strikers sit just one game ahead of the Hurricanes despite having played two extra games. So the race of the top four is well and truly heating up. Um, One little factoid I did pick up on the other day relating to the Big Bash that I feel has really flown under the radar is that the evergreen Peter Siddle has taken 23 wickets thus far in the tournament. That's the most by any player by three wickets. So good to see he is still in some sparkling form. That was super slick, Ben. Uh, Switching over to the soccer world and in the English Premier League, Manchester City have all but wrapped up the title this year with a Kevin De Bruyne stunner beating Chelsea 1-0. They're now 11 points clear of Liverpool in second place and 13 points clear of Chelsea and it appears to have an unassailable lead. 
Chelsea advanced, however, to the EFL Cup final, uh, comfortably beating Tottenham 1-0. They'll face either Arsenal or Liverpool, who play the second leg of their Cup final next week. The biggest news, though, from the week was Rafa Benitez being sacked for his Everton manager after they lost 2-1 to Norwich, who have kept their faint hopes of staying up alive. Uh, Everton won just one game in their last 13, and it was just a run of form that Benitez couldn't survive. However, we know that the problems at Everton run far, far deeper. And for such a big club who have spent so much money, they're actually facing down the barrel of relegation for the first time in a very long time. Newcastle also blew a great opportunity to jump out of the, the bottom three with a one-all draw with relegation rival Watford, whilst Felipe Coutinho returned to the Premier League and got a goal and an assist in just 15 minutes of game time to help Aston Villa to come from behind 2-2 draw with Manchester United. The North London Derby was actually controversially postponed, despite Arsenal not providing proof of more than one COVID case. It's great questions over whether the Premier League has given clubs too much power and allowing clubs to cancel games for reasons outside of COVID, which they normally wouldn't be allowed to do. Closer to home, there are actually only two games played in the A-League's men this weekend. So whilst the A-League women's was highlighted by a Sydney FC 6-0 drubbing of a woeful Canberra United, there's really been a big shift in the, the women's game as the top of the teams are, are really significant uh, amount better than the bottom teams and, it, and it's a really big issue that the, the league needs to solve and in spain sevilla's great form continued in la liga they're now drawn within just five points of real madrid with one game in hand and barca are also just now one point outside the top four as atleti continued to struggle real madrid won the super cup over athletic um, claiming the first piece of spanish silverware for the season and i believe that's now their 91th uh, title, uh, 91st title, I should say, um, and Barcelona are on 90, so they've just gone one over their, their arch rivals. In great news for the women's game in Spain, there's 70,000 tickets being sold for the women's El Clasico match at, at the new camp this week, and there was really a mixture of discount and free tickets. People jumped out straight away, and it's shown a really good way to naturally increase the interest in the women's game. In France, PSG all but wrapped up the Ligue 1 title as last year's champion Lille are floundering in 10th at the moment. In Italy, Inter Milan and AC Milan appear in a two-horse race for the Serie A title. And in Germany, Bayern have a two-game buffer over Dortmund. Hugo, would you like to take us to the US? Yeah, no worries. Start off in the NFL. And we had uh, the first week of the playoffs for this year. We had several blowouts and one or two minor upsets, actually. The Bengals broke their 32-year playoff win drought, uh, lasting from 1990 in their defeat of the Raiders. The Bills trounced the Patriots in an extremely impressive offensive displays, whilst Tom Brady and the Buccaneers cruised past the Philadelphia Eagles and the Cowboys won a very close, intense match with the 49ers. Uh, Dak Prescott, the Cowboys quarterback, elected to run the ball uh, through their quarterback with seconds remaining. However, they didn't allow enough time to spike the ball in the, in the, before the next play and their clock ran out of time before they could do so, resulting in the end of the match and an agonizing loss for America's team. In the last game from Monday, Mahomes and the Chiefs comfortably beat the seventh seed Steelers in what could be Big Ben's last game in the league. Finally, on Tuesday, we saw the Rams knock out the Cardinals in the last game of the Super Wild Card weekend. In the NBA, the big news of the week is that Brooklyn star Kevin Durant is injured. He's expected to miss four to six weeks with a sprained MCL. Not only does this damage the Nets' challenge for the top seed in the East, but all but confirmed Steph Curry won his third NBA MVP. 
Now fellow Nets star Kyrie Irving has reaffirmed his beliefs um, and an anti-vaxxer, as an anti-vaxxer, and has vowed to not get the vaccine despite Durant's recent injury. In other news, uh, Miami Heat have welcomed back several All-Stars in the past week with Bam Adebayo and Jimmy Butler both returning after since away from the team. The Heat sit second in the East despite these injuries and are now ahead of the Nets who fall to third. It'll be interesting to see how the East and the rest of the NBA shapes up in the coming weeks. Okay, Ben, what about the world of tennis? Yeah, it is all about tennis this time of year in Australia. And the big headlines started rolling in well before the Australian Open even begun. The big news I'm referring to is, of course, Australian young gun Tanasi Kokonakis winning his first ever ATP Tour event at the Adelaide International. The hard-fought victory for the injury-plagued 25-year-old was met with adulation and plaudits from the entire tennis community, not least of all from the GOAT himself, Roger Federer, who I saw took some time out of his rehabbing to shoot the likeable young Aussie a congratulatory message, which was very nice to see. Unfortunately, Kokonakis was unable to parlay his winning form over to the Australian Open itself, bowing out in straight sets in the very first morning of that competition. We will have a full wrap of the results to come out of the first week of play at the Happy Slam, as well as a build-up and preview of the finals during next week's episode. Kokonakis, I mean, what a, a drop in form. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys saw that that game in the in the Oz Open, but it was a pretty average display of tennis and didn't look like winning at any stage, really. Um, yeah, maybe so still hung over from his celebrations. Yeah. <laughs> Probably. Like one um, or two other Australians. Sam Stoza excitingly um, got through the first round, first time in a while. And, Saw that um, she dropped the first set, came yeah, back. Yeah, nice, nice to see that. Um, otherwise, I think there's a few Aussies in action now. So yeah, Dimon was about to go into the the court at time of recording. Annie Murray just won a, a thrilling five set match, uh, and Grigor Dimitrov, who typically known for playing some beautiful tennis and then just bowing out in kind of. Um, to, to lower ranked players also held on to, to get a win in four sets as well after a bit of a shaky moment. Um, and I think there was a big gun who planned on coming, but then maybe couldn't play. Ben, did you catch something on that? <laughs> I heard a few whispers about a story like that. We'll get into to all the details about the Djokovic story for our second main news story of the night. So stay tuned, everyone. I will quickly jump over to the remainder of sports results and we'll go to the golf where Hideki Matsuyama made up a five shot deficit on the back nine to win the Sony open in Hawaii in a playoff with one of the best shots he never saw a three wood into the sun that went to just three feet to set up a winning Eagle on the first playoff hole. That was a pretty funny one. He's looking straight into the sun. He's got no idea where he went. He asked his caddy and the caddy just motions with his hands that it's about <laughs> 20 centimetres <laughs> away from the hole. Says, That'll do. That's the victory. Um, and finally, in the AFLW, Fremantle, Adelaide, Collingwood and Melbourne remain undefeated after two rounds of action. The uh, match of the second round was undoubtedly Tigers versus Dees. Under Friday Night Lights, Melbourne ran that out, 16-point victors in a nice high-scoring affair. All right, boys, let's sink our teeth into that Ashes series. And to lead us through it, here is Hugo. Yeah, so we'll start by going through that that final test. We had a 146-run win. However, that only scrapes the surface of the match. 146-run win to Australia, of course. Um, we had Australia in the first innings make 303. Well, it was a, a shaky start, boys, with um, 
Australia 3 4 uh, 12 at one stage before Marnus Labuschagne and Travis Head put on a spectacular um, fight back. It was just amazing cricket to watch. Uh, England bowling really well and Marnus and Travis just decided, look, we're just going to have to have to take the sword to him. And if we're, if we're going to get out, we may as well get out swinging. So those, those two put on uh, 70 odd and were four for 83 when uh, Cam Green came to the wicket and put on another great partnership with Travis Head. Head uh, eventually falling for 101, just one ball after making his 100 and Cam Green falling for 74 um, in what seemed like a wasted opportunity for him, albeit a great innings. Uh, boys, what do you what do you think of that first inning? Some great bowling from England first up and then good counter-attack from the Aussies. Yeah, I reckon you hit the nail on the head there with that counter-attack. It seemed as though, like, it's going to be tough to bat time here and Labashane and Head made a, a really conscious decision that we're just going to try and put the pressure back on the bowlers, spread the field a bit, um, arrest some of the momentum. And it's a really gutsy play, obviously, with the benefit of hindsight. We can say it's the right play, but... You know, if either of them had gone out cheaply and exposed green, we could have been on for an all-time role there. Um, so two fantastic innings, a real tremendous coming-of-age knock for both Head and, and then for Green. I thought I was absolutely filthy. I went out on a limb on last week's podcast and said Green was going to notch up his his first 100 and I was 20-odd runs off being proven to be prescient there. So um, I was probably the biggest loser to come out of, of his dismissal. What did you think of the first dig, Aim? No, I, believe, um, I agree with both of you. Uh, I think the bowling from England at the start was awesome. Broaden uh, Robinson had it had it hooping. That follow up from Wooden Wokes just wasn't good enough. Um, they works sorry Wood going at kind of five and over and Wokes just not looking threatening at all in like the perfect conditions you would think for him. Maybe it's a Kookaburra ball. I don't know. I think he's also probably a bit of a sensitive guy as well, like very level headed and stuff. But obviously wanting to prove to himself as much as anyone else that he he is okay at cricket away from home, but he averages something like 50 away from home in, in test matches and like 21 or 22 at home. So um, it is a really big issue for him. And then, yeah, just, just brilliant batting. Um, we get stuck into the the second innings of the match now and um, Hugo Jenner take us through the England scorecard. Yeah. So it was uh, similar findings for England as we, as we've come to know, I mean, Rory Burns dismissal was, <laughs> A bit of a laughing stock, to be honest. He was given not out, and no one appealed on a ball at the edge to to carry, and then a few balls later gets gets run out by a nice direct hit from Marnus. Must be said. Um, some fight from from the England top orders. Some fight, at least, was nice to see with Crawley, Milan, Root all getting to double figures. Which I guess that that's a feat is Lovely. a story of the series. Um, and then, I mean, just not much resistance until you get to the tail. Uh, Ollie Pope and Sam Billings looked looked quite good together um, and would have liked to see both of those two succeed. They seem like nice guys and potentially future for England. So um, it was nice to see Chris Wokes have a bit of a dip towards the end as well. Managed to score 36 of 48. But I mean, if, that's your, if that's your highest run score for innings, you're not really going to be competitive. For the bowling, I mean, Pat Cummins, again, just too good. And uh, Scott Bowling only with the one wicket. I mean, what's gone wrong with that innings? <laughs> yeah, no, you, that pretty well covers it, I reckon. I thought that um, 
our bowling was just fantastic. They throughout the series, the English seemed to just get the sort of wrong end of a, a bunch of 50-50s and it carried on through that that innings there, but also just the times they had to bat in the day night tests because they just they looked no no hope in under the lights. Um and they we saw that evidenced in the fourth dig, um, <laughs> which we'll we'll get into, but it was it was a similar story with the second one. Um but yeah, the Aussies just across the board too good, really. Hey? Well, I actually disagree a little bit. I think in this match, just about everything went England's way in terms of getting to bowl first on that deck. I think the Australians had the hardest time to bat at the very start there, and England just didn't make the most of it. And then they should have been well and truly in on that that second day. Like um, the track wasn't doing too much, or at least nothing crazy. Uh, and we saw then Australia had to bat it at night and ended up at three for whatever. Um, so I thought it was actually a pretty dismal display of batting once again from, um, from the English and yeah, there were two, weren't there, that they were caught behind without really a big appeal. I think Darwood Milan also had an inside edge. Yeah. Um, I don't know about you guys when you've been playing your cricket, that has never happened to me before you <laughs> nick one and they don't appeal like <laughs> any sound you're up. Um, so yeah, it's interesting that they didn't review either of those. And I think there was an LBW as well that was, um, was salmon, but Cummins didn't didn't refer it. So anyway, I thought it just kind of continued the the trend for England in the innings and obviously um set up for a, a really big fail in the last innings, which I'm sure Hugo will take us down now. Yeah, so I mean Australia, David Warner gets a pair, Stuart Broad bowling beautifully, only gets the one wicket, but you've got to talk about about Wood in that third innings, Australia's second innings, bowled beautifully, bowled. Uh, a short line of length to to the Aussies with with the field back and many players like to, to take on the short ball or even not just to fend it and manage to get a few wickets. Um, but before then, we, they had the the ball hooping in the in the evening session. Uh, got a few early wickets. It brought out Scott Boland as the night watchman, who did a beautiful job, faced most of the deliveries of the rest of that evening, and then came out with Steve Smith. Smith, I think, looked arguably the best. His He's looked in the in the series, maybe that innings in Adelaide, except for that. Um, but then held out to a short ball, which has become a bit of an issue for him and will be a storyline to follow in the upcoming tours. Um, apart from that, you've got Cam Green again looked good before getting getting out to a ball he he was getting out to earlier in the in the series. And then Alex Carey, quite lucky, um, it seems, but uh, a nice innings, nonetheless, to get to 49, one short of his half century. And uh, it really is good fight back from England, considering they got the three wickets under lights and then just kind of rolled through Australia in the morning, um, which looked like it was much easier batting conditions. So really well bowled from Wooden, definitely deserved that six for, um, not just from this innings, but from his performances from the rest of the series as well. Boys? Yeah, spot on. Wood was really impressive. I thought he fought hard and it was good to see him get reward for effort. I think the commentators were saying that 250 was probably the number um, they had to keep us under. And I thought that was about right, if not, you know, pushing the higher end of a sum they could chase. Sorry. <coughs> Let it that out. Um, pushing the higher end of a, a sum they could chase. But they gave themselves every chance and it was just that, nagging Aussie tail, which continues to wag just enough. Um, some odd runs here and there from, from eight down just proved enough to get us out to what really looked to be an unassailable lead of around two, 280. Oh, 
God, I'm dying here. <laughs> 280. What do you reckon, home? Oh, no, I agree with... Don't have a lot to add, to be honest. Mark Wood was superb, finally getting some um, reward for his effort throughout the whole series. And uh, it was interesting, a few pieces written up afterwards, kind of going into the problem of England cricket and how it really stems back very, very deep into the, the psyche and the culture around the sport. And he's one of uh, just two, I think, public school uh, educated cricketers in the, the English side. Um, and you can tell that he doesn't have this instilled. He, he picked the game later in life and he doesn't have this instilled notion of having to play this kind of dour, single-minded approach to, to cricket, which are these kind of Harrow school of thought cricketers have that the rest of the English team is made up from. Um, I was going through the Australian team. It was um, just about a 50-50 split in terms of public and, and private school educated guys. And you can see that in their personalities and the way they approach their cricket as well. So it was great to see some fight from Wood. Um, and yeah, I thought, um, I mean, Kerry had a <laughs> incredibly lucky innings, but they were really crucial runs. And as, as Hugo said, the, the tail wagging um, as well was, was crucial. So um, yeah, all set up for a grandstand finish, but wasn't quite to be. Yeah. So let's go, go through that last innings then. I mean, it looked really good for England. They were none for 68 before the first wicket fell. And at that stage, I don't know about you guys, but all my group chats were lighting up and mm. we'd already written off the test, it seemed like. Uh, <laughs> I was nervous, but I don't think I could go that that far. Um, I mean, England had proven time and time again how they just collapse and it happened here again. But so were you, you predicting go from, that bigger collapse? Like, no, exactly. No, no like you don't problem. predict that much. But they, at that stage, they still needed just under 200 runs. And if you, I think if you went before the innings and said England need 180 to win, you'd say almost Australia would still be favourites mm. with their their batting lineup and, you know, the night conditions coming. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it was a great fight at the start from Burns and Crawley. Uh, good to see Burns get a few runs. However, he did was somewhat unlucky with his dismissal, although a false shot is a false shot. And he fell to Cam Green, who was looked like would be the hero of the innings and arguably was. Got, took three early wickets, the, the top three from England. I think now he's dismissed every member of the English top six um, in this series. So that's a great story for Cam Green. Um, and then you've got Boland getting Joe Root out again. Um, ben Stokes, pretty abysmal series from him. Um, great catch from Nathan Lyon there. Then you've got Ollie Pope, gone, bowled by Cummins. Billings uh, caught Cummins, bowled Boland. Boland gets Wokes as well, and then Cummins gets the last two. And um, the English tail didn't put up too much of a fight. I think it's fair to say. <laughs> And in the end, you had England none for 68 uh, and then all out for 124, which I think kind of summarises the tour, to be honest. Australia 4-0 and a great display from the Aussies. Three wickets for Cummins, Boland and Green and one for Stark. Nathan Lyon didn't bowl a ball the entire series, the entire test, sorry. How about that? Yeah, well, that pretty much sums it all up. To be honest, it was an amazing turnaround. I was um, I was out, so I wasn't watching, but I was checking my phone. And same as you, in addition to the scores, I had a few messages coming in. Think we might have a test match here. Um, and then over the course of a half hour dinner, I I came back and the test match was more or less over. <laughs> and I'm driving home in the car, um, 
and thinking, oh, at least I'll get to watch a, a good last session of cricket. And as I drive, just wicket after wicket <laughs> after wicket, um, it would have been a bit of fun to watch. But uh, just at the end, I mean, it sort of carries on a conversation we had a little while back, but I'm I'm firmly in the camp that, especially after the series has been won, I'd like to see some close test matches. Yeah. Um, and I just thought it was pretty disappointing that from where they were just before dinner on on day three that they couldn't at least make half a fight out of it. What did you think, Ham? Yeah, I agree with all of what you guys have said. It's that classic notion, one brings 10 boys. Um, <laughs> you just run, run through the English order. Um, God, they were just, by the end, the distances were just so ugly. It literally would be like what we would look like if we were out there. Ollie Pope walking to to point and then Ollie Robinson yeah. walking to square leg. And there's this photo of Ollie Robinson with one foot off the pitch yeah. like, like on the green grass yeah. um and anyway um mark would leave all the ball not chopping on hitting the ball into his stumps into yeah. his stumps literally so um anyway i'm happy to leave that there and, and go on to the the series as a whole i thought it was a little bit of a it was a dramatic but slightly underwhelming finish to what could have been a, a pretty great game in the end um i've got up here our Ashes Eve predictions that we, we put Ooh, up on Facebook before the start of the test series. And I'll read them out. So in terms of the results, Ben went 3-1 Australia. Hugo got it spot on, 4-0 Engl- Australia. And I went for 3-0. Um, I thought I got my weather predictions wrong. I thought they weren't going to get on at the Gabba at all. Um, but um, yeah, Hugo got it spot on. Player of the series, though, none of us were, were near it. Um, Ben went Warner, Hugo went Steve Smith, and I went Nathan Lyon, who, as you guys said, didn't even bowl a ball in the, the last test match. Um, on that note, who did you guys think <laughs> should have been player of the series? Oh, tough one. I actually think they got, got to it be right. Scotty Boland. Oh, you reckon? <laughs> After three tests? It's impressive uh, that Head managed to get it with getting contracting COVID in the middle of the series, though. That's good yeah. going. I mean, in a bowl of friendly, friendly um, series to score 200s it did pretty well i think stark is also very unlucky he was fantastic when the series was on the line not as good in the sec last two tests but um really good in those first three and also crucial runs with the bat so i think if you were going to pick a bowler i mean hate i hate to say it wouldn't be bowling but you'd arguably have to go stark for his, his value in the first three um tests but yeah i think it shows yeah. how close it was that the player of the series there was we had a legitimate discussion as did others about him not getting back into the team for the fifth yeah. test like i can't really remember a series there was where there was no standout performer to that extent i don't i still think it was justly deserved i still think he was yeah. the player of the series but it just it wasn't an obvious one as it usually is no i agree completely um it's quite exciting not knowing who they were going to name they were going to call out. Um, I think heads shown in the past, we should have really expected it in the cash in summers, so to speak, when we've got the <laughs> likes of Sri Lanka or um, uh, who else did he make his hundred New Zealand, New Zealand touring. Um, he's good at cashing. Like he's, he's a very, very good batsman against those bowling attacks that just aren't quite as strong. Um, the ones he struggled against are, are India and then England away. So they're the only two series he struggled in. And I think any batsman's um, mm. going to struggle in them, especially when they're trying to cement their place in the team. So super happy for Travis head. Got to admit, I've, I've really warmed him this series. Um, I think he um, definitely could be future captain material, which definitely isn't something I would have thought 
before the series got underway. I think he speaks pretty well um, and he seems to just have the the kind of right approach to the game where he's not getting too down uh, if he if he gets out and very level headed throughout the whole time. Even though he did chip one to, to mid on after after getting his hundred in this <laughs> test match. Um, mm-hmm. I guess the next one is uh, what was everyone's highlight and, and low light of the series? You go, you happy to go first for this one? Yeah, sure. So my highlight of the series was being lucky enough to attend the the Adelaide Test in person, um, and some some highlights from that game, like seeing Marnus make a ton, you know, number one batsman in the world, batting with Steve Smith. Steve Smith should have scored hundred that day as well, and then you've got. You know, Michael Nisa making his debut, Jay Richardson taking a Pfeiffer. Um, really exciting test and always want to go to Adelaide. So um, to watch that game live was was a highlight. And my low light was Shane Warne, not just the commentating, but just all his, his media um, presence throughout the entire series. Yeah. Um, just making other fellow commentators uncomfortable, um, weird comments about the... The, the team lineup, not just about Mitch Stark, but also how you'd pick Mitch Marsh over Usman Khawaja. Um, and then, you, I mean, you can't ignore the first ball commentary as well, labelling Mitchell Stark's first ball a bad if, ball if that didn't swim. If that ball set the, um, the tone for Australia series, <laughs> that comment set the tone for Warney's series as well. Yeah. Um, it's a really good pickup. And, yeah, I think he's going to be pretty lucky to be getting his contract renewed with Fox Sports. Oh, he'll get it. Next year. Yeah, but... He shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. He's not. It's not one of those guys who like. You get some commentators who are a bit polarizing, and there's always like a, th- a third of people who are like, "Nah, he's great for the game." He says kind of what I'm thinking, blah 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 blah. Even if it's not the kind of mainstream school of thought or particularly respectful, I just don't get that with one. I don't think anyone really buys into what he's I saying. I think it's just um, flipped the last summer though, where yeah. it's really gotten to that stage now. Yeah. And then I don't know. he is great with spin bowling, but apart from that, like you just, yeah, it's not worth it for that stage. Did you see his sledging of Chad Sayers on, on Twitter? Yeah. See, that was the thing. The hey champ. I didn't want it. Yeah. Yeah. That was yeah. so oh. unnecessary. And it's like, uh, does he not realize he's Shane Warne? Like, yeah. What are you doing? You don't, yeah. you don't need to pick those fights. It's just such a waste of his time. Absolutely. Um, ben, your highlight. Yeah. Um, my highlight was probably Stark's first ball to contradict Warney. I would say, um, as I said off the top that I thought it was sort of the exact opposite of Harmison's first ball and that that set the tone in, in the, the wrong tone. And I just thought this set the exact right tone. Um, it really just set the series alight for the Australians and, and we never looked back. Um, my low light was not seeing any of Pekoski over the five tests. I mean, when, when he debuted last year and obviously debuted in some pretty spectacular fashion, highly touted um, future of, of our top order. I just think it's really upsetting that, that we didn't get to see him on home soil, hopefully this time in, in 12 months. Um, that'll, that'll be a different story. They're really good, both of them. Um, yeah, I've gone with Scott Boland, six for seven at the MCG. Uh, I think both that spell and Stark's first ball, potentially things we'll never see again. Um, I'd be very surprised if we saw another wicket first ball, especially of an Ashes series. So, um, yeah, just being there. It was a fantastic MCG moment for a Victorian local. Uh, couldn't have been happier for him and such a humble guy as well, which I think is what 
makes the best cult figures is, are those who don't seek the the limelight but but get given it anyway by Bay 13 and the whole crowd to be honest and uh, for me the low light was well in general England's woeful batting but particularly their collapse under the lights and the last S I I wasn't um, out of my seat cheering the Aussies guffawing tribal all this kind of stuff going on I was actually just pretty flat when it was going on because I genuinely thought that they were going to challenge and put up some kind of fight uh, and when they folded it um, it doesn't take away anything from what Australia's done but I honestly don't know if I can remember a worse touring side let alone English side like all the other sides at least they show some heart and compete um, I think to the Pakistan sides of, of years gone by when they're clearly undermanned and struggling. But um, there was that, that test at the Gabba where they, they nearly chased down 400 despite the series lost and all these kinds of things. And um, yeah, we I just thought it together. was... We did. Yeah, that was that was scary. They nearly got there. Um, yeah. Fantastic. If you're, if you're going on worse touring sides, you can't forget New Zealand a couple of years ago. That was atrocious. True, but like... <laughs> You gotta love yeah, the no, case. I agree. The, the, you gotta love the case. Their batting was also atrocious. Jeet Raval just couldn't get one away on <laughs> that whole series. But I think it just being the ashes and the fact that like it matters so much to the English people when you see the batters batting like they did at the end there, where they appeared mentally shot, but also just kind of um spiritually just kind of lacking any uh fight or determination to bat for their future test careers bat for the country i just thought it was really disappointing and that for me was was the low light and i for me though it means that in two years time that ashes in england's gonna be a really really good one i reckon um yeah yeah it's a shame that the another test summer's come to an end to be honest um always a sad day we got the big bass finals so don't worry too much <laughs> don't worry too much and the women's we've got a women's test to look forward to as well which got a, we've got a lot to be we'll covering watch. that we're covering that in a in a couple of minutes, I think. And um, I will be trying to get all I can to get to Adelaide, like you did this year, Hugo, to watch South Africa there next year. It can be an awesome test match. Um, moving on to South Africa, I uh, just thought we'd touch on this one briefly. Hard not to. It, for me, it was it was such an engaging test series. Then touched on it at the top there. Um, I was partial towards South Africa in this series, and for me, that just made it more um, gripping as well. Uh, so much more gripping than this Australia series. We, we were discussing off air that these kind of series where every innings is between 200 and 250 are the best in test cricket. You can't go past them and the tense chases at the end. And it is, it is just so impressive for me what South Africa did. I'm going to pose it to you guys, whether you think India's win in Australia last year when they were severely undermanned and Collie went home and Shami broke his arm and blah, 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 was more impressive uh, than South Africa's win this year. Um, where do you guys, if you had to pick one, which do you think stands out more to, to you? Yeah, I'll start. I'll still say it was India's just because of how that series started. I mean, they got whacked in the first test. They got absolutely rolled um, in their second innings in Adelaide. And then Coley goes home um, and they go to the MCG where it's always tough to get a win as the touring side with all the chips down and that Rahane hundred was unbelievable. They, they turned the tide around and then the last two tests batting so bravely to salvage a draw in Sydney. And then that unbelievable run chase at the Gabba. I just thought that had everything and they were losing pieces as they went. They were thinned out, thinned out, ridden off by everyone. Um, and yeah, that for me had, had everything in it. It was one of the best, um, test series I've seen on Aussie shores. 
um, aside from the result. So I still would probably give that the nod. What do you what do you say, Hugo? Um, I would go the South Africa win because of a similar argument as to how the series started. They yeah, the first test went to India pretty convincingly, and South Africa could have rolled over. No one expected them to win um, against a full strength India side who has flattened. Seems like everyone since or even before that series against Australia. So to come back with the the state of South African cricket as it is now, that their, their World Cup performance and just lost their best, arguably their best batsman as well in Quinton. Yeah, for the, exactly. The um, and to come back and win that with with some young bowlers and and a new opening batter as well, or not new opening batter, but new opening bat some bank talent. Um, it it it's really exciting and great for cricket in general as well as South African cricket is the result because I mean we all just want even tours and sharing the wealth of cricket. So if we can get some more good series in South Africa, hopefully teams are more willing to tour there and hopefully the the funding will will get back in South Africa and funding will come back to South Africa and um and the other nations and we'll get some closer series. So I think that's a, a great result for everyone. I miss yeah, you. Yeah, I, I I'll sit on the fence. I think they're both very <laughs> impressive in their their own ways. Um I'd think of one and then I, I think of the other. Um but yeah I just uh it was just so good to see for Test cricket as a whole, as Hugo was touching on. And like it although South Africa cricket has been in turmoil, there's all kind of racist um trials going on at the moment for past racial things and members of the current side and coaching staff have been called into them in the last six months or so. Um, there's funding issues. There was no crowds going on. There's just everything going against them. Um, and just one of those moments, similar to their win in the, the Rugby World Cup a couple of years ago, I think it could be a really defining moment for um, the nation and for South African cricket as well in general. I think what was so entertaining about this series, apart from some really, really high quality cricket and in particularly the bowling uh, was the fact that both countries wanted it so badly, like the pride that you could see them all playing with there. There, there was no easy wickets, no cheap wickets the whole way through. Um, and South African bowlers like, like Marco Janssen, who I'm going to bang on about until he comes out to Australia next year. I honestly reckon he's the, <laughs> the next big thing in, in test cricket. He just looks like he's got the temperament. Yeah, and again, out of it big left arm quick um, banging it into the wicket and, and doing all kinds of things. Um, but I guess the big story apart from South Africa's win to come out of the series was it is Virat Kohli's last series as Indian test captain. Uh, he appeared to, uh, by his own judgment, decide to, to leave the role. Doesn't appear he was pushed, um, but it was interesting that throughout the test match, he appeared to come to the end of his tether. Um, there was a, an, DRS decision, which was originally given out, Ashwin trapping Elgar in front, um, going into that that last final chase when South Africa needed 212 at a really crucial moment. Elgar reviewed and ball tracking showed it to be going over. Um, Coley's then gone up to the stump mic and started yelling at the stump mic a variety of things. Ashwin's come out and accused Supersport, the host broadcaster, of cheating somehow as if there's some bloke from Supersport hacking into the ICC network and changing the ball tracking. Um, it was petulant. It was embarrassing. And KR Rahul also lost his cool and was doing it as well, supposedly tutored as the next captain. So um, I guess the first thing is uh, for Virat Kohli, it's, it's a disappointing way to go out. But as a whole, he's the most successful Indian captain ever. 
when you guys look back on his captaincy, how do you do you reflect? Um, I guess for me, just one thing before you do that is uh, I look at India's recent achievements and Ajinka Rahane was the captain when they won out here in Australia. So um, they haven't won an ICC trophy since Virat's been in, in charge. So I think for me, it's really mixed, but I'm, I'm keen to hear your, your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, they're good points and they're noted, but I still think he has gone a long way to changing the culture of Indian cricket, especially um, Indian test cricket. And culture is a word that gets banded around in sport a lot, but I, I do mean it when I say it in this case. I think that they're they're so hungry um, for for performance and for results uh, with the with red ball cricket in a way that I just didn't see them being under MS Dhoni or Tendulkar before him. Um, I just I just think he really has reformed the way they go about it, the fielding, the professionalism. I think the IPL has had a bit to do with that as well. I'm not saying it's it's all on him, but as far as you know, leading by example goes. He, he does hold himself to really high standards um, on both those marks. And, and just as a, a competitive animal, I mean, it's hilarious when the camera's on him um, during test matches when, when they're in the field. He's so emotional. Um, and he, you know, he's just a, a quite a charismatic leader for them. And, and I think even after his, his tenure is done, he's, he's left a fairly indelible um, legacy and, and mark on, on that test team, which will carry forwards. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with it, uh, most of the points. I just want to touch on the the whole stop mic thing again. Yeah, I mean, that aside, that, that was bizarre. That is the type of thing you see under 11s doing to an umpire and you just can't stand it as like their coach or a dad. And you just like, I just cannot understand to how... Be fair, a, it's more defensible doing it to an umpire because that's a human being with feeling yeah. that could actually like potentially have cheated this is a computer <laughs> this is an automated system like what are you what are you doing and then it just seems like they took random swipes at at them for the sandpaper gate like oh honestly i i don't understand it and i hated everything about it um as a international test captain and you know ravi ashwin and others like just take it on the chin and move on. Like that's the technology's made that decision. It's the same for everyone. You don't have to like it, but that's just not how you deal with it. Anyway, um, on his captaincy, I think his uh, cricket knowledge is definitely there. Uh, maybe maybe more than someone like Joe Root um, as his leadership on the field. All your points I like, Ben, but also it just seems like a small counterpoint, like slightly some strange things about sledging and and things like this moment in the this moment in South Africa isn't necessarily an isolated moment in his leadership style. So it's always been a bit jarring for me, but um, I think he's been a great captain. Obviously, he didn't lead that win in Australia, but he set up the team and. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting to see where the team will go from here um, and what the BCCI will do um, with everything following um, that small disaster, really. I mean, we know the ICC aren't pressing any charge, well, not charges, but they're not, there's no punishment or anything, which, again, is bizarre. But, um, yeah, an interesting period. Yeah, and I, I agree with 
Ben as well. Um, as I was touching on some of the kind of results-based things of his captaincy, I think what he's done not only for Indian cricket, but Test cricket as a whole has been awesome, just reigniting the passion for it. Um, India were boring when they'd come out under Dhoni, like genuinely a boring team to watch. And under Kohli, it's hard to take your eyes off them wherever they go around the world. Um, and I really hope that continues. Whoever they choose next, I hope they have the same passion for Test cricket because if India likes Test cricket, it will continue to be well-funded and that um, we continue to be given centre stage in a in a white ball era. So um, can't thank him for enough for uh, his dedication to the role and his passions obviously uh, overflowed at times. But um, yeah, it's ignited something in in the Indian love of the game and, and for Test cricket as well. So um, he he also did other things as well uh, in terms of increasing their ability um the fitness what fitness wise firstly they'd never had a beep test as far as the indian cricket program before Coley took over his captaincy um he also increased their, their fielding drills and, and their kind of standards in the in the field as well and you can see that in the field they're one of the better fielding teams now the likes of jadeja whereas beforehand they were known for just not getting down to ground <laughs> balls and overthrows and all this kind of stuff so um yeah i think Looking back, I think he would definitely regret what happened this test match and he was a man under pressure who made mistakes. But overall, I, I do tend to agree with what Ben had to say. Very good. All right. You ready to jump into the second main story of the week? Let's do it. Second in inverted commas. It was a pretty big um, story. And that is the, the Novak Djokovic debacle. And when when we left you last week, listeners, it was it was all pretty much a settled score. He was playing. He was in the draw. Um you know, the, the deportation had been overturned in the courts and it was looking pretty rosy for the men's world, number one. Well, not so fast. We come to you one week later and everything has changed. So as I did last week, I'll, I'll quickly jot you through the timeline of events and then we'll, we'll sink our teeth into the discussion points of which there are numerous. So on the 11th of January, as I said, with his status still somewhat uncertain, Djokovic was installed as the number one seed in the men's field at the Australian Open. Uh, one day later on the 12th, he came out with his most extensive public comments on the matter um, via social media. He said, uh, it's worth noting that this was actually put up by someone else because it happened while he was practicing on the main stadium on Rod Laver Arena. Um, he said there was a mistake in his travel declaration coming to Australia, which he failed to indicate he had been in multiple countries over the preceding two weeks. Djokovic blamed his agent for checking the wrong box on the form, calling it a quote-unquote human error and certainly not deliberate. He also discussed the interview he did following his positive PCR result in December, describing that as quote-unquote an error of judgment. Then on the 13th, he was included in the official Australian Open draw, um, slated to play a fellow Serbian player in the first round. Then Friday the 14th, the inauspicious Friday the 14th rolls around and Immigration Minister Alex Hawke um, says that he has used his ministerial discretion to revoke Djokovic's visa on quote-unquote health and good order grounds on the basis that it was in the public interest to do so. Djokovic lawyers lodge an appeal against the decision and on January the 16th, the full bench of the federal court, three judges unanimously upheld Hawke's decision to counsel the Serbians visa on public interest grounds. And now Djokovic is back home in Serbia as the tournament is commencing. So there's just a whole host of things to come out of this big bubbling mess. Um, I sort of have tried to sum it up 
in in a sentence. I think it's it's a matter of the wrong process ultimately leading to the right decision. Um, I'll start with you, Hugo. Is there more to it than that, or is that more or less? No, I think I I think I agree. Um, I think it's worth mentioning that a lot of people are quite over this story as well. You know, yeah, fair sick enough. of Djokovic and everything, so we won't we won't talk too much about our political views. We we talked a lot about that last week, but I think um, it is sad to see him not playing, although um or regardless of COVID it's sad to see him not playing but I'm glad he's not playing um now considering he's unvaccinated and um all the fans and everything have to be vaccinated to watch um it's a shame how it all worked out but um yeah it was it was well summarized by you Ben um right result wrong process yeah okay well here's one here's one for you Hamish and Slightly more vexed issue, and obviously we're not immigration law experts here, but I do struggle to see on the finer points how this decision in any way preserves either public health or good order. I mean, at the end of that, I know he's unvaccinated, but he is just hitting a ball. Um, and even on the good order point, I think you're probably going to raise more of a rebel crowd by sending him out of the country than you are letting him stay and playing devil's advocate and being a bit provocative here. Cause as I said, I do think the right decision was made, but if that's how you're going to couch it, if they're the terms you're going to, you're going to justify the decision in, do you reckon that passes muster? Um, I don't think it passes the pub test. I think, um, yeah, public health one, you can throw out the door. Uh, there's <laughs> however many hundred thousand right. cases in yeah. Victoria going on every day. The good order one's got a little bit more to consider. I think uh, the arguments they were using in the court case, which I was just following very loosely, were a little bit odd. They were using random examples of how his previous statements had been used kind of to ignite other motions around the world and between different groups and this kind of thing. Um, but none of them quite lined up with what was going on here. So um, that was a, a little bit of an interesting one. They were relying on things like social media and stuff, which are, Always a little bit tricky um, when it comes to these these legal issues. But, yeah, at the end of the day, I think they did the right thing to throw him out. I, I agree completely. It was just a completely wrong process, but they yeah. got the right position. It, it took 11 days too long. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, regardless what anyone says, the, the simple thing is, like, he could have avoided this if he'd gotten vaccinated. And no matter how you think he was mishandled at the process or anything like that, when I think about that and that's the root cause of all these problems, it's like, well, you had this in your hands. It wasn't actually the Australian government who decided to, um, who had the power of you, you had the power of yourself. So um, he's responsible for, for ending up back home in Serbia, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's worth noting that. And I'm glad you did. It's, it's not as if he was asked to do this terribly onerous thing that was going to jeopardize his safety. And anyway, he was asked to get a, a proven proven to be safe vaccine that 95 percent of us here in australia have gotten nothing that he was asked to do was anywhere as as onerous as the the days in lockdown that we've had to endure to to maintain our public health and safety so i i'm not going to be crying too many crocodile tears for novak but it does it does bring up some interesting points as to where his career goes from here because these rules are here to stay not only in australia but um all over the world and he's stranded on those 20 majors along with Nadal and Federer. And if you had, had have asked anyone that follows tennis sort of late last year, where they're all going to end up, 
people would have said Djokovic 24, 25. There was no reason to think otherwise. He's not that old and still playing great tennis. But now you look Aussie Open. We've followed the rules there. French Open, you need to be vaccinated or have an exemption to get into France. That was just announced the other day. In the UK, you need a vaccine or 10-day strict quarantine, not the ideal preparation for Wimbledon. And in New York, as far as I'm aware, you need a vaccine or an exemption. And I cite Kyrie Irving's cases as my evidence on that. So there's your your four majors. Um, the only one where he would be able to play, to my understanding, would be Wimbledon with a, a 10-day hard quarantine. So that's um really throws throws his career right up in the air. What do you reckon? Yeah, it will be interesting to see if this causes him to to change his mind. Um, I think today they announced that there's you can't even get an exemption for the Roland Garris um, tournament. So he oh, there you go won't be able to play there unless he gets vaccinated. So I mean, we'll see. Um, they've pulled out the entire you know, police force to get him an entourage to leave the Serbian airport. So let's see if politics plays any role in it. I'm sure it will. Um, yeah, Hamish? He's going to play, in my opinion. Um, it's just the way I think these things end up in the sporting world where it's all pushed by money and the bottom line i'm not sure how it'll happen he might get some dodgy vaccine that's not really a vaccine and they tick him off they might find some loophole in the rules that gets him in or i don't know what kind of passports he has i don't know what the eu says on everything but um yeah i think he'll end up playing at least a couple of those um wouldn't be surprised if he skipped the french given it's probably the hardest for him to win um but yeah i think the other tournaments have learned a lot from the Australian Open and the way the Australian government's handled this. So they'll want to sort it out yeah. in advance. They won't want it to drag on. If it does start to drag on, um, I, I might start to doubt it, but I got a feeling that about a month out from the tournament, we can we can lock him into play. That's just my just my gut feeling on this one. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see where this goes because it, it would be a, a travesty if that's how his career ends. Say what you will about the guy. He's undoubtedly a great at the game and it's just not not how you want to see his career come to an end. Alrighty, let's move along. But before we do jump into our various moments of the week, it's worth dropping a quick hint to listeners that we do have something special in the works, a, a one-off uh, Nuffy episode without giving too much away. If, if anyone wants to drop into our socials or our email and, and send in some ideas for some very niche sporting debate topics, we'd be more than happy to field all questions in that particular episode. Anyway, moving on to my moment of the week, and, and that comes from the Australian Summer of Golf, which started this week with the PGA Championship played at Royal Queensland. The tournament heralded a real coming of age for Aussie young gun Jed Morgan, who took out the Joe Corkwood, sorry, Joe Kirkwood Cup by a whopping 11 shots. I watched this um, final round when I was at work, actually. Hopefully my boss isn't listening. Um, and he's the spitting image of Leighton Hewitt, this young kid. Um, he's like same build, same mannerisms, and he's got the same come on, which is seems like really out of place on the golf course <laughs> compared to the sort of high energy of a tennis court. But anyway, he's he's got the the charisma to go a long way, and it, it looks like he's got the game as well. So he's quite young. He'll be playing in the Victorian um, 
the Vic Open at 13th Beach in a couple of weeks. So if any listeners are, are wanting to get down and, and watch a young Aussie golfer play, that'd be a, a good place to find yourself. What about you, hey? Moment of the week? Oh, that was fantastic. Uh, so my moment of the week, some people might have caught on various socials that did go a little bit viral, was the African Cup of Nations game between Tunisia and Mali. This was hilarious. It was defined <laughs> for some interesting refereeing. So the referee, they, they put out a statement after the game saying he supposedly suffered a heat stroke. Didn't seem so at the time. They have a fourth um, official, like a spare ref at every game who could have come on if the ref... Anyway, we'll get into that later. The first thing he did was give two of the worst penalties you'll ever see given. There was one handball given. The guy is facing the way towards the goals and his hand is tucked in by his arm, gets kicked from point blank range behind him. Doesn't even know like where the ball is when it's kicked at him and, and it was given a penalty. Anyway, between those two, Tunisia missed theirs and Mali scored theirs. So Mali are 1-0 up, gets to the 85th minute mark and the referee blows the final whistle. Um <laughs> The players are very confused. The crowd's confused. The staff are confused. And he just goes, yeah, starts shaking the players' hands, wandering off the field. And everyone's like, what is going on? Fourth referee or or whoever else pulls him inside and says, no, 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 you you can't stop the game at 85 minutes. That's not actually in the rules. You have to play 90. Bit disgruntled, head backs out there, starts the game again. Tunisia are pushing for an equalizer, gets to 89 minutes, blows it again. This time walks off. Game's done. He's not having any of it. He's not waiting to 90, 89. He's had enough. Tunisia are absolutely stunned by what's going on. This is one of the the premier uh, confederation cups in the world game. And during the Tunisian coach's press conference, when all his players are sitting in a communal ice bath, the referee wanders out and says he's restarting the game and they need to come out right now. They're playing the last one minute. Tunisian guy is mid, it's, it's hard to believe. It's his mid press conference and he gets this message. The ref comes in and says, we're starting. You got to come out. His players refuse to come out as, as they would. So the game finishes 1-0 to Mali and all the Mali players went out and stood there for one minute while the ref started. Um, they just stood sit on the pitch. And Tunisia were then threatened to be kicked out of the competition for violating rules and not showing up to complete a football match. <laughs> Absolutely bizarre. Of course, immediately after Tunisia appealed the game's results on the grounds that it didn't finish, which are a pretty strong grounds you would have thought. Mm. However, the Confederation of African Football replied saying, no, the game is definitely 1-0 to Mali. End of story. We're not going to kick you out of the competition, but you have to accept it. Look, it was completely bizarre. You've never seen anything like it. Not even junior games does this kind of stuff go on. And to be honest, I thought it was actually a little bit sad for for the African Cup of Nations, which has some of the world's best players playing in it. And it's one of the most heartwarming and, and competitive tournaments in in football to be just marred by this absolutely shocking display of refereeing uh was bizarre definitely worth heading on to the old the old youtube and checking out yeah, the we'll, we'll tag that in our comments i reckon yeah we'll check that in the, the comments that's, that's <laughs> worth having a look of i i it did pop across my news feed and i just thought it was hysterical it reminded me a bit of when you get a great cricket umpire like sort of late in the day on a sunday and the the matches sort of pretty well sealed they got a few final wickets to get and they just start triggering Triggering. you like they (laughs) want to get out of here if you get hit anywhere near sort of below the waistline you are gone mate we're going 100 that was just unbelievable um hugo any thoughts on that otherwise moment of the week um yeah not too many not too much to add pretty bizarre moment um in the sporting week 
Um, so I will move on to my moment of the week. We've talked a lot about the Ashes, but um, had to have one moment of the week for me. And uh, that was Pat Cummins getting the final wicket of the fifth test um, to lead the team to a 4 0 Ashes sweep. Um, it was great to see the, the skipper get the last few wickets, although they weren't the most beautiful deliveries. He's bold. Um, he's just a, a guy that's so easily to support. The Australian public's got around him as captain so so quickly. He's even in Melbourne when Scott Boland comes out to bat, you know, he was clapped just as, as loud, maybe not quite as loud, but just as much and everywhere gets just as much support as as any other player. So it's great to see and it's nice to see him get that last last few wickets and led led the team beautifully on the field and then in the post-match celebrations in a, in a couple key moments with the Usman Khawaja. If you didn't see, he uh, was on the stadium, the stand, when they were presented the trophy. He had to run off pretty quickly when they started spraying champagne as he's Muslim and doesn't um, consume alcohol. Um Pat Cummins then uh, encouraged Usman to come back on the stand and told told him they weren't going to spray champagne anymore. So that was great to see him supporting and the rest of the team support Usman. And then also um, a bit of a smaller one, but at the the pub after the the result, um, they were all you know seeing Sweet Caroline. Everyone seemed to see those images with the Barmy Army next door, and it looked like Nathan Lyon was trying to lead a rendition of the team song, but. Pat Cummins wasn't too keen on that, um, which is, I think, a good line to draw for the captain. Um, but, you know, at the end of the test summer, it's a it's a nice chance to reflect on on Pat Cummins' captaincy. And um, it was really good to see him get the get the last few wickets and the team get around him. Yeah, I agree. All, all really good points. He's, he's such a likable guy. And I like that from an Australian standpoint, he proves that you can be a fierce competitor, a, a really sort of hostile fast but an intimidating fast bowler and a good bloke they're, they're things that if i hadn't seen it in real life i would have thought are mutually exclusive um <laughs> but i have seen it and i and i, and I see it and believe it um there's there's a lot to like and he's just such a wonderful cricketer as well he's he's just perfect such man. a good every time i watch him yeah he's pretty close to the perfect man um He's such a good fastballer. He's a joy to watch, and and I think he'll be a tremendous captain after seeing that sample. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. Couldn't be more impressed. He's got that look in his eye as well, especially in that last Test match. He's got authority in that team. He owns that dressing room. You can tell he's the boss. Um, it's not Justin Langer. It's not Steve Smith. Pat Cummins runs that room, and he's not a guy that you would uh, be talking about behind his back or or acting up to. I'm sure as well. Um, and one thing I will say is I think it's a very good thing he chose not to be out at 6.30 in the morning. Uh, I thought it was a little bit <laughs> a little bit embarrassing, that video that was popping around this evening with Joe Root and Jimmy Anderson, night after pretty tremendously awful Ashes display, caught at 6.30 with Nathan Lyon, Travis Head and Alex Carey um, drinking beers and being asked by four police officers to please leave the venue. They really want to close and you won't let them close. Um, and they were all... <laughs> They were all absolutely drunk. Um, Lions there going, you can just catch him. He's going, he's, he's the drunk who's trying to take control of the situation. He's trying to apologize to the police officers and say, yes, I will, I'll now leave. Forgets his phone, has to turn around, get his phone given to him, wandering off with Alex Carey, helping him out. Um, 
a little bit embarrassing for those guys. I think it was a good thing that, that Pat decided to, to hit the hay early and um, yeah, <laughs> hey, finish, it was, it was good content though. It was funny. I, was I like that they were. I like that they were out together to be honest. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just um, I don't know. The police. A are, thing to note from that that yeah. moment is the coach filmed that video and yeah. as such is likely to be sacked. Well, it was so, Graham Thorpe. It wasn't Chris yeah. Silverwood. It was the, the no, coach. no. It was Graham um, Thorpe, but apparently he wasn't likely to keep his job anyway, no. and now is likely to be sacked because of this video, not because of England's, England's terrible batting. batting. <laughs> funny that. Um, it's all about yeah. optics. It's just I don't know. I think it's when the four police officers have to come and ask you to go. Yeah. You probably overstate your welcome um, to a very polite uh, business who are just trying to do the right thing by. Some guys who clearly have a little bit more authority in that dynamic than them. Uh, moment of the week from the fence. This fan moment of the week comes from keen listener Will. Uh, don't forget to send in your fan moment of the week to, sorry, it's oldsportpod at gmail.com or at oldsportpod on any of your socials. And if you're lucky enough, you may be featured on the podcast. Um, so his moment of the week was Tanasi Kokonakis winning his maiden ATP title in his home state. Uh, he's a character who hasn't succumbed to the bad tantrums or extravagant behaviour like some of our other tennis stars. Kokonakis is very well liked and well appreciated by the Australian fans. Um, and it was just really great to see him get his maiden win at home in the past week. Um, this was sent in with uh, a message at the end, hopefully leading to a huge Australian Open. Uh, sadly, that didn't result, as we've oh, already cool. summarised. Um <laughs> Kokonakis beat Arthur oh, Artur Rinder, Rinderneck, yep, Rinderneck, Rinderneck, um, the French um, player, and uh, it was a pretty convincing uh, route to the final before a 6-7-7-6-6-3 win in the final. So a good close game. Um, and it was just really good to see Kokonakis get the win. I agree with Will. Um, a really good moment for Australian tennis and for Kokonakis himself. Boys? Yeah, I mean, I, I touched on it off the top, but I thought it was great to see. And it's worth making the points that you did that he hasn't really been caught up in in the scandals of juvenile behaviour that a lot of other Aussie young guns have. Um, he, he seems like a guy that's pretty unanimously likeable. And I think that was reflected in the the sort of outpouring of of support and congratulations that came after his victory. Such a shame he couldn't. Um, continue on into you know get himself ideally around the weekend or the second week of the Aussie Open um because I, I do think this Aussie Open needs a, a storyline that is not Novak and it needs one fast cool I agree completely uh with both of what you had to say uh I remember when he burst onto the scene five or six years ago playing against Curios in that junior Australian Open final and he was just as exciting as Curious at the time obviously he's come to some pretty average injuries since then just great to see someone achieve their childhood dream and win a title and pretty likable guy, as you guys were both saying before, which is pretty hard to find in, in Australia's men's tennis at the moment. One other reasonably likable Australian men's tennis player is Alex Simonor, who's currently on court at the moment. So he's he, I think, is our opportunity for a little bit of a, a storyline going into the second week. Um, it's obviously then a dull in the tale. Side of the in the men's Sorry, side. In, in the men's side, I'm looking at. Um, I think with the women, Ash Barty will always be a, a story, and Sam Stoes are also one today. So mm. I think there's enough happening on that side uh, with the soccer and, and others. I think I'm, I'm a little bit worried about the men's side in terms of interest this this tournament. Ah, oh, geez, I can't find my watch again, boys. I keep you know leaving what? it. I've lost mine as well. 
Hey, Mish, what are the odds? Hugo, tell me you've got the time. Uh, it is time once again for Cyprus's favourite segment, <laughs> Hit or Miss. Ben, I think you're going first. Um, again, shout out to our listener in Cyprus. Yeah. And can I say, I reckon this is one of the better hit or miss segments we've got coming up. So I'm very keen to, to get sucked into this. I haven't read through them, so you're, you're ahead of me. All right, here we go. Um, again, slightly on the provocative side, but I will argue the case. I think I think that former English greats and test captains, Michael Vaughan and Alastair Cook, overstepped the mark when saying that this English team, quote-unquote, gave up in the fifth test. I heard both, I heard both of them say it. Um, Vaughan on the on the Fox broadcast just after the uh, that collapse on the third day and then Cookie I saw pop up on my Facebook with some seriously stern words for what I assume was um, some broadcasting he was doing back home in England. So I've got a few notes uh, on it. First of all, on the substance of the matter, I think they were just thoroughly outplayed by a really superior opposition. Second, I think the batting conditions under light there at the end were really trying and the most embarrassing dismissals were tail enders after the game was well and truly gone. The batsman that went out like Root, you can't say he really threw his wicket away. He got one that rolled off a good length. Stokes potentially, but that's how he plays his cricket. He just holds out to a man in the deep. Uh, And third, I actually thought that was by far the most competitive overall test, as we were saying with a session before it actually ended. It was was almost 50-50 in the balance. Um, But I just reckon that, on the principle of it, both these blokes captain their sides to 5-0 losses over on our shores. Um, and not too long ago in the case of Cook. And giving up is the absolute cardinal sin of professional sport. And I just think they should both be loath to throw around such an accusation, um, especially when I'm not entirely sure it's a defensible one. Hit or miss? You go here. I think it's a hit. I like your point about the, well, I mean, the top of the order fought hard. That's the most fight we've seen from the opening batsman, at least. Those weren't easy conditions when the openers went out there with the new ball um, and they survived and fought hard. I mean, uh, they kind of threw their wickets away with those shots. Um, you can say they were unlucky with the chop-ons, but I think that side of a chop-on is is over-exaggerated. You've played a bad shot and you've got out. Um so I think it's a hit in the fact that they didn't give up. Um, uh, I mean, the tail kind of gave up, but who wouldn't? Um, what about the fact that just... that's just something you shouldn't say, like especially yeah, as an ex-captain? No. I just don't. I just don't think you say they gave up. You can say maybe they were they were completely outdisplayed. You know, go as hard as you want yeah. on on that line that they were outplayed. But the, like to say they weren't trying, is, I think that is so rough. Yeah. No, I agree, Hamish. Um, I agree, but I think it's got nuance to it. So I think there is a difference between whether they gave up and whether they overstepped the mark when saying that this team gave up, which I think is what Ben was saying there as well. Um, I think they overstepped the mark when they were saying that they, they gave up. Whether or not in those English players' heads they truly believed they could win and wanted it desperately and were going to give their all 
that might be brought into question, but unless you are there playing and in that dressing room and going through what their players are going through, only then I think, and you're really close to the team, can you say that they gave up? I think Cook sitting in his London studio watching the game from afar. To me, him saying that kind of, as as Ben, you mentioned, his 5-0 losses, that infers to me that he's probably given up in the past. He must know what the players are going through. He must recognise those signs. If he's so sure to say that they gave up, then he, I think, is at the same time admitting to the fact that he had probably done the same thing on previous tours to Australia. I think this tour to Australia is by far the hardest that England have faced in a long time. With the fact that we're going through a global pandemic, um, they've played 17 tests in the last year. Their team simply isn't good enough um, to compete out here. Uh, they didn't have any kind of preparation. And yeah, I think um, they may have given up by the end, but I don't think it was for want of trying per se throughout the series. Look at Mark Wood on that second last day, giving right, his all exactly for the team. Right. And um, whether they they thought they couldn't win, that's that's a different story for me. So yeah, I agree. They overstepped the mark and I think they they should be loath to throw around such, such accusations. It was a really good one. Um, all right, moving on to my hit or miss. Changing track, we're looking at, Back in the soccer world now. And it's a broader question, um, which I, I, I probably haven't worded quite finely, but we might finesse it as we go. The statement I want you to say is either a hit or a miss is that to ensure the long-term competitiveness and avoid becoming a one-horse race league like the Bundesliga or League On, the Premier League must introduce fairness policies to make the game fairer. Now, these might be through a salary cap. They might be through a kind of open draft situation where either you get rid of academies and it's an open draft for young players or it's an open draft like the IPL do where you can only keep, let's say, eight players on your Premier League list every and every four years there's an open draft um, and anyone can then apply to, to pick up these players um, obviously needing some kind of salary cap fairness to ensure that lower clubs can play for can pay for the, the higher earning wage payers players. Um, my concern is that the Premier League is going to become a one horse race with Manchester City going on to win four out of the five of the last Premier League titles. Uh, do you guys think that there needs to be some kind of fairness policy introduced? Yeah, it's an it's an absolute hit for me. I think it, it breaks across all sporting codes, but. The specific example of the APL is a really good one because, as you mentioned, that's where the trajectory is mapping. Um, I just think that it's a no-brainer. And even those fairness polities, it, it doesn't make it fully equitable. Um, you know, we've still seen in, in bringing it closer to home in the AFL, if you manage a club really well um, and instill good practices across the board, that you can have intergenerational success. It's not just sort of a, a merry-go-round of success. I mean, on the flip side, look at a club like St Kilda, which is terribly managed in the AFL. And we've got all the opportunities that every other club has under the draft and the salary cap and can't convert that into anything looking remotely like success. So I think you get all the pros of a, a competitive competition where you can still have clubs that dominate and have these fantastic dynasties, but you just avoid having a total one horse race. So it's a big hit for me across the board. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think it's a miss for me. I would love it to happen. I think, I guess maybe that's a hit then. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's got all the hallmarks of a hit. <laughs> I just think that 
we've had these periods of dominance from certain teams before. This does seem particularly um, dominant from Manchester City, you know, four out of five. But um, I think a few sides, like Chelsea up until now has been run pretty, pretty badly for a couple of years. Um, they couldn't get, they couldn't transfer players for a year as well. Um, although they've had the chance now to challenge Manchester City and they haven't, like maybe it'll just take a year or two. Um, Liverpool arguably could have won two there. I mean, they did all they could that one season and fell short. Um, and then they won it the year after. Um, I just can't see it happening. Maybe, again, that's not necessarily a, a miss, but, I mean, to uproot football in England to change it that dramatically just would never happen sadly i think um the feasibility yeah. is, is dubious feasibility yeah, is a separate issue i guess but um i i maybe think it's not required i think the sport would be much better off if it was more equitable but um then you've also got to look at relegation and promotion and then how you deal with all that um so i don't think it's as easy as as we'd like it to be um so that's a complex answer to an easy question <laughs> well um, no it is a it's a complex well, question yeah. and i think i don't think you'll ever have an equitable competition like you do in the afl where every team realistically can win a, a, a title within five years i also don't think that's what the fans want of most of the Premier League. All they want is a shot at being able to improve and a shot at going into every week and feeling like you can compete or like at least at the start of a season being like where you have the ability to compete. Whereas there's really just three tiers of teams now. There's the, the bottom teams who genuinely like a Manchester City, like fourth 11 would comfortably beat some of these, these bottom sides. And then we've got the middle teams who have been there for the last however long. Then we've got the, the top kind of four or five who are in the league of their own. And then there's just a couple of outliers. So it's these Leicesters and West Ham teams. That's what I think makes the league interesting, um, bright and early this season. And I think we need to make it fairer so that we have more of those stories. You don't, Leicester at the moment will never win another title, like with the way City is, even yeah. though it's only been six, five, six years since they last won theirs. You just want it to go into the season being like, there is a one in 50 chance that a team that's not one of the big six could win the league. I think that's all we're asking for. Um, and personally, I actually think the easiest way, they're never going to introduce a salary cap, let's be real. Um, I think the academies are the way, and they're not going to give up their academies easily, but why don't they have county football going around? Instead, yeah. of, instead of clubs having the academy, have Sussex versus Surrey on a, on a Sunday afternoon. And then all these young <laughs> players, they get to 18 and they're wanting to become professional footballers. Then it's an open draft. And if you finish last, you get the first pick. So just give them first access to it. Have set contracts like the AFL does for those first couple of years. Give them a chance to embed themselves in the system and, and give a chance. That's what I would personally do. We look at the likes like of it. Chelsea and, and Manchester, Manchester City with Foden and stuff coming through their academy. Imagine if Norwich had had a Foden, they'd be um, well and truly a different side. So anyway, it's a tricky one. Um, I don't think our English fans will necessarily agree with what we've had to say. We live in a country where we've got salary caps in pretty much all our sports. So um, <laughs> we live for an equitable game. But yeah, I am a little bit worried about where it's tracking. All right, let's move on to, to my one. It's a 
bit of a, a lighter one. You can can fire through it pretty quickly. Um, that is the boxing day test and maybe some of the other major tests should include a headline performance similar to that of the AFL grand final. Miss for me. Um, I just think that the box, A, it's such a long event, the boxing day test, and you sit down and you're at your seat for so long watching the cricket that when lunch comes up, you want to get out of your seat, you want to roam around, you want to play um, some sort of ad hoc cricket with anything you can find that resembles bat ball and stumps. Um, meet up with your mates that are at the ground and not seated in your area. I just don't reckon that um, uh, an act at halftime would really get off the ground. I don't think it's a, a terrible idea or anything and it's something they could look at, but just personally, it's not something that would draw me to the cricket any more than the cricket itself. I've got a proposal for you, Hugo. Yeah. Picture this. It's uh, it's about 1.30 p.m. Everyone's rolled in to the ground. Uh, we've got some kind of international act coming on to, to perform. Take your pick. Um, and they've just played a, an awesome set. Let's say it's Powderfinger. They've just played a, an awesome set. <laughs> oh, the G it's is, a hit for Powderfinger. Sorry. The G is <laughs> no, rocking. Just change my answer. And then we get into our, our first ever Boxing Day Day-Night test. That, for me, is... Um, the way you'd do it. You'd have to have the, the set before the game, but you can't really have it if it's going to be a 10 o'clock start in the morning. People aren't quite ready for, ready for happiness. my happiness at, at 9, 9.30 in the morning. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I like I like the idea. I think they should do more in, in the lunch and tea break. Um, yeah. I just, I agree with Ben. It might have to come somehow be in the middle of a, of a headline act or just some kind of better entertainment than Milo kids keep running around. I do love, though, uh, on Boxing Day, um, as the opening basketball walkout, how they play Great Southern Land. Um, that always gets me so amped to watch yeah. the first ball. So if they could have Great Southern Land being played live by whoever recorded Great Southern Land, um, <laughs> that would be a charm. <laughs> nice. Hell well, it's a, it's a hit for me. Um, I think if you had it at lunch... It would it would go down well. Um, obviously, you have enough people wandering around and stuff. But if you did it properly, I think you're not trying to draw in people for that. You might draw in a couple, but I don't think people go to the AFL Grand Final for the live performance. Um, but yeah, who knows? So I think it's a it's a hit for me. Um, I mean, it can be a massive in the Super Bowl. Yeah. It's almost a bigger attraction than the Super Bowl. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you just do it for day one at lunch, get a local band that's big, like, you know, I don't know, whoever they do for the AFL grand final, not suggesting they get, you know, Meatloaf. Coldplay or um, Ed Sheeran or anything, um, but not that they're my favourite performers, everyone. Qualify, qualify. Coldplay and Ed Sheeran at the same time. There you go. Um, you can actually listen to our... Our separate podcast, um, old music <laughs> pod, uh, where we discuss Coldplay and Ed Sheeran in depth. <laughs> All right, Hamish, should I go through uh, on this day, on this week? So for this on this day, on this week segment, we actually have a an on this day for this week. That is January 18, 1886, and that is when modern field hockey was born with the formation of the Hockey Association 
in England. Now, I can't say I've been able to play field hockey because it is one of the most discriminatory sports. They do not let let left-handers play because apparently it's too hard for the referees to tell if they use the back of their stick. Rubbish. Having said that, though, I do love watching it (laughs) at the Olympics um, and a sport that Australia has been eminently successful at. Uh, Boys, do you want to talk me through what hockey means to you? Um, I had the the honour of... Uh, you, you go first. I had the honor of coaching uh, Queen's College Hockey to a premiership this year. We went undefeated. And um, actually, first time I've really gotten into hockey, and it's a great sport. Um, I kind of wish that Australians got around it a bit more outside of the Olympics. Um, and I'd had a bit more of an opportunity to play it when I was younger because maybe I would have got into it. Who knows? Um, but, yeah, great sport. Not too much more to add. Um, love watching it come the Olympics. Yeah, Ben. Um, yeah, it is. It is a great sport. It is such a taxing sport. I've only ever played <laughs> it once when we couldn't get enough numbers up for my St. Michael's cricket team and the hockey team couldn't get enough numbers up either. So it was one or the other and the vote went to hockey. So half the cricket team <laughs> had to fill in for the hockey team. Um, and the cricket players were just significantly better at hockey than the hockey players. <laughs> so I think either we had a pretty poor hockey team or the skills are quite transferable. Um, but it is like, it is such a taxing sport. You are just non-stop running it didn't help that i didn't understand the positions at all so i was just sprinting <laughs> after the white ball never getting anywhere near it. it's a lot of fun though um it's a great sport one i wish I'd, I'd played a bit more growing up but it's tough when you're a cricketer because i do think it is a summer sport it's a sport that you notice i noticed when we were playing um this year that like the good players are significantly better than the like casual players like Oh, yeah. You know who's who's played a lot, whereas cricket, you know, you might get a medium pace to come in and take six for like who knows. Um, anyway, yeah. Um, Hamish, is there another smaller moment you just want to touch on there as well? Yeah, there is. And to segue to that, I would just say that hockey's got to be one of the, the toughest sports in terms of just how brave you have to be to play it. You hear, hear of the most horrendous injuries on the hockey field fractured yeah, yeah. skulls and broken legs ruptured and testicles or oh. ruptured testicles there you go yeah um you do have to be very tough to to play hockey you also have to be pretty tough to face what happened this time in in 1933 and that was body line which happened on january 16 uh so that's a on this week for the on this week on this day segment for this week and that was the day that bert oldfield suffered a fractured skull and as Paul Kelly said in his song, Bradman, they nearly jumped the fence. Uh, it's important to mention, and it was pretty topical given Mark Wood's spell the other day. Boys, could you see uh, a world in which body line is, is legal and still in test cricket and the game is completely different to how it's played today? Or do you reckon that batters would have come up with a way to, to kind of deal with it and we would be seeing a reasonably similar game to the one we see today, even if you could have more than two fielders behind square leg? I um I saw an interesting piece done by ABC recently where they interviewed some of the Australian test cricketers and they asked them, you know, a few questions, one of which was uh, that um, body line was a perfectly valid tactic and Jardine was a tactical masterpiece, which is an interesting way to frame it. Um, 
because I mean, at the time it was, and Bradman went from averaging 100 to 50, which I mean, you'd still take 50 any day of the week, but it worked. Um, and I think Australia spun it very well, very well in the way that they did um, to change the laws pretty quickly. I mean, it was pretty ugly as well, but I don't think there's a whole lot wrong with it at the time. It's just the lack of helmets, really. Um, That's the big and one. it was not not good for cricket as well. The viewing apparently was atrocious because you've just got not like the batsmen literally can't do anything with the field they've set and no helmets bowling at the same pace they do nowadays. Crazy. Yeah, I don't really have anything more to add. I think that the helmets is is the biggest difference. Um, tactical masterpiece is an interesting one, but like maybe it was. It, it's probably one of the first time that the genuine analytics entered into cricket i think that they'd they'd studied bradman's technique and obviously picked up on a floor there and exploited it with some um fantastic uh pace bowling by by larwood albeit some sort of slightly iffy moral tactics yeah it's not like they were facing um you know scott boland on a pristine mcg wicket or, or adelaide wicket either these are uncovered pitches that they yeah. were Belting in balls halfway, half of them would go through ankle height, half of them are going through to crash into your ribs, and half of them going at your head. So it's not like you can just duck all the short balls and fast. You can't just duck all the short balls because you get hit by half of them. Like you have to try and defend yourself and you can just put three leg gullies in and you don't need anyone on the offside. Um no. would be interesting to see though if you could still bowl more than two bounces and over, and if you could have fielders behind there, whether the likes of Glenn Maxwell would have come up with kind of a different stance or a different method to to deal with it and just hoik balls or, or ramp balls off bounces or these kinds of Dave things. Dave Smith, but, um, tennis, tennis, yeah, the tennis shot, shot the, the straight drive off the bouncer. <laughs> exactly. Um, so that's all for today's segment of on this day on this week, for this week's episode. Uh, we'll move on now to, uh, preview the upcoming events in the week ahead of sport and where better to start than the NFL. Yeah, so we got a huge week of upcoming sport. Uh, in the NFL, we have the second round of the, the playoffs, the divisional round, which will see the Bengals face the Titans at 8.30 on Saturday morning. Packers are big favourites in their face-off with the 49ers at 12.15 on Saturday. On Sunday, the Rams play the Buccaneers. Um, that game's at 7 in the morning, and the Bills also play the Chiefs at 10.30. Moving on to cricket, we have a huge week of cricket starting today with the second ODI between Sri Lanka and Zimbabwe. Kane. Um, the yes. fixture I'm most excited for, arguably, is that game that's on right now. Hey, should we get a live score for that one? Keep going. I'll, I'll give you one. Um, Zimbabwe are one for 76 after 12.4 overs. So and... strong start from Zimbabwe. However, so I'm going to have just broken through. Irvine was captaining a series. Let me let me see if I got that correct. <laughs> this um, is some quality content. So <laughs> <laughs> the people good. are here for. If you've made it this far in the episode, you deserve to know what's happening in Sri Lanka versus Zimbabwe. Yeah, That's Craig true. Irvine. Yeah, he's currently on eight dot out go. of eleven. Reinstated um, as captain for this. We series. also have the we also have the South Africa versus India ODI series it starts uh, Wednesday evening. Um, the fixture I'm most excited for is the start of the women's ashes. Um, the, we're the first T20 starting Thursday at 7, 10 PM, uh, Melbourne time. For those that don't know, the women's ashes is a multi-format series with points allocated to the wins for wins in three T20s, three one day games and a one-off test match held in Canberra. Um, 
Australia will be without star Beth Mooney. However, still go in as huge favourites, having held the Ashes since 2015. So that's um, an exciting series coming up for all cricket fans and Australian cricket fans. Should be some good cricket, even though Australia are heavy favourites. Um, on Friday, we have the first of the Big Bash finals, the Eliminator. With finals still to be chosen and test stars returning, uh, it's a big, exciting week um, of Big Bash action. So be sure to tune into the games. They're pretty much every day, if not two a day. So just check on, on your app or just tune into to the cricket. I'm sure there'll be a game on. Uh, we also have another international series starting overseas uh, with a lightning quick turnaround for the English side, as this time their T20 men's team travelled to West Indies uh, with the first game to be played on Sunday. Uh, in the rugby, we also have um, an upcoming series in the World Rugby Sevens series. That's back up and running this month with a full competition starting on Friday in Spain. Uh, this month's competition will see both the men's and women's competing as always. The women's looking to back up wins in the competitions held during November and December. So it's exciting for both teams to get back up and running this year. Uh, in the netball, we have uh, the netball quad series has been running for the past week or so. And tomorrow, the Aussie Diamonds face the English hosts in the final. So good luck to the Diamonds in that final game. Hamish, do you want to run us through soccer? Thanks, Hugo. Yeah, I'd love to take us through the upcoming soccer events for this week. So on Monday morning, we've got Chelsea versus Tottenham in the Premier League. This will be the third time they've played in about 10 days and Chelsea have had the wood over them the last couple of times. The one I'm looking forward to is Manchester United versus West Ham in a top four shaper on Saturday morning. We've also got Liverpool versus Arsenal, as I mentioned earlier, in the second leg of their EFL Cup semi-final tie, and that's on Friday morning at a good time if you live on the Australian Eastern Seaboard. All right, fantastic. And in other sports, obviously the biggest one at the moment is the Australian Open Tennis, which is going on as we record currently it's halfway through the the first round um so not a lot of action has transpired yet but as we as we record next week we will have a full week of of entertainment under our belts to digest and and a big second week of action to preview for you all um the other thing that's worth noting from the world of golf is that the new dp world tour the formerly known as the european tour um kicks off in abu dhabi this week with the HSBC Championship. Um, again, sort of s- politics merging with sport a bit. Um, this is a really big purse. This one, they're paying for $8 million and it's attracted a stellar field, but not without a bit of criticism to have the launch of this new world tour um, being played in the Middle East. Uh, Shane Lowry, the f- 2019 British Open um, champion from Ireland, was actually pressed on his involvement in the tournament uh, to which he responded, I'm paraphrasing, uh, I'm, a, I'm a golf player, not a politician, so I don't see any issue with it. So it'll be interesting to see how that um, brand new tour works out. All right, time for our bold predictions for the week ahead. Hugo, do you want to start us off? Yeah, um, I've gone an un-Australian route with this one and I think Naomi Osaka will win the Australian Open again. Sadly, I think I'd love Ash to get there, but um, I think Osaka will be too strong. I think they made up in the fourth round, I think. So um, we'll see how that goes. But hopefully Ash gets gets the win, but I think Osaka will be too good um, when they face. Ben? Yeah, my prediction is also 
from the world of tennis. Um, I've got Nadal into Barty double. Barty's obviously the the favourite, but Nadal is not top of the betting for the men's draw. Um, he sits behind Medvedev and a couple others, I think. So I reckon the old KG Spaniard will get the job done. Interesting, interesting. Someone's going to be um, held to account there. Hugo, they both better make it to the fourth round now that the, you've gone <laughs> with the, the when rather than the if there. Um, yeah. Look, my bold prediction, I'm not sure my heart's entirely in it, but I'm going to go for it anyway. I think the Big Bash is actually going to finish reasonably strongly this year. It's been the most difficult Big Bash season in history, and I'm hoping they're going to have a pretty competitive final series with a greater focus on the competition post the men's ashes and people just winding down into the, the school holidays. I think they've timed it reasonably well this year. So here's to a, a competitive finish to the Big Bash. I like it, Hamish. I just have to say that, I mean, it's only, you know, halfway through January. We've still got a month and a half left and we're coming into the last week of the Big Bash. I don't see why you couldn't put the Big Bash on now when the test summer's over. It just seems seems better for me. But I am excited for the end of the Big Bash. I well, didn't couldn't have cared less about the start of Big Bash. However, kind of gone into the season as it's gone along, maybe as the as players return, who knows? But I like it. Yeah, I agree as well. I think um it would make more sense to do it when the players are available. Uh but this year it really has only been for the kids, as far as I'm aware. There don't seem to be too many people above the age of kind of 16, who I know that have been particularly into it this year. So anyway, hopefully they, the crowds turn out for the, the last couple of games. Yeah, absolutely. All righty, that is just about all we've got time for this week. Really sorry to men's number one tennis player, Novak Djokovic, that we couldn't squeeze you onto the show this week. Obviously, we had that penciled in, but with the whole visa issue, you weren't here, so we couldn't get over the line. Better luck next year, champ. Thanks to all, all the loyal listeners for joining us as we've talked our way through a massive week in sport. Be sure to join us next week as we get stuck into our Australian Open coverage in earnest and bring you all the news, results, tips and predictions you could possibly consume in one sitting. And of course, deliver one more memorable instalment of Australia's favourite podcasting segment, Hit or Miss. From Hugo Hamish and myself, however, it is goodbye for now. <laughs>